Chapter 2 of Essays, Irish and American. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Essays, Irish and American by John Butler Yeats. Recollections of Samuel Butler. I knew Butler. In the year 1867-68, I was a pupil at Heatherley's Art School, Newman Street, London, and Butler was there also. It is not true that Butler had talent. To be a painter after the manner of John Bellini was for years the passion of his life. It was vain. He had no talent. At the time I knew him, he was beginning to see this, and it was pathetic. We tried to comfort him, and would have cheered him with false hopes. All the intellect in the world won't make a painter if it is not the right kind of intellect. A Scotch friend of mine and his, whom Butler loved because of his knowledge of music, would sometimes say, Yes, Mr. Butler, you are a dominie. And he would chuckle slowly in his Scotch manner. Like a dominie, he kept us all in order. We called each other briefly by our surnames without the prefix of the Mr. Butler was always Mr. Butler. Once, a daring citizen of London ventured, Have you been to the Alhambra, Butler? He pronounced it Alhambra. That gave Butler his opportunity. The Englishman in possession of all his H's can always hold the many in check because of their deficiency in H's. Is there an H in the word? said Butler. Never again did my poor friend venture, or for that matter, any of us. The Irishman likes his equal, and is, as everyone admits, the best of comrades. The German likes his superior, but the Englishman likes to be with his inferior, and is not comfortable in any other relation. He is sent to the public school and the university by his anxious parents and guardians that he may acquire the superior manner. There are two sneers in England, the cockney variety which no one respects, and the university and public school sneer which compels respect, even among foreigners. It impressed Gotha. The footman puts it on, but overdoes it, so that at a glance we know it to be counterfeit. Butler was the politest, the most ceremonious of men, but the sneer was there, and all the more palpable because so carefully veiled. We were art students and tried to be bohemian, or would have done so had not Butler been one of us. There was a student whom he much liked, one day he took him in hand and in his most paternal manner admonished him that he must not use the word chap. Butler was an Englishman through and through and an Englishman of class. The Englishman of class will part with his faith, with his wife and children, with his money even, or his reputation and be cheerful about it. But closer than his skin sticks to him his class conceit. And in his accent, his voice, his gestures, his phrases, he carefully preserves all its insignia. Possessed of these, he knows he may go anywhere, and associate with anyone. It is a passport entitling him to a nobleman's freedom. Every Englishman, gentle or simple, either by force or by patient groping, will try for a sheltered spot where he may have his own thoughts and his own ways hampered by none. But the Englishman of class is freest of all. A policeman, even he, will hesitate to interfere with you if he knows that you are a gentleman. In his Way of All Flesh, Butler describes English home life, and he enables us to see that affection and sympathy do not form part of it. Butler, 
the product of that life, sets little importance on either affection or sympathy, and yet there never was a kinder man. Good nature was fundamental in his character, and was, I think, the source of most of his writings and opinions. The English, going about life in an intensely selfish way, and doing this on principle, are obliged to have strict laws strictly enforced. Yet outside these laws they claim and allow the utmost license of action and thought. It is their distinction among nations that they love personal liberty so much. That is for themselves, for they are quite ready to enslave other people. But this love for personal freedom has grown up, side by side with it, and as part and parcel of it, an immense appreciation of human nature itself. Against this appreciation, Puritanism has vainly and indeed deloriously struggled. Butler's good nature was due to his liking for human nature itself, hence his zeal against all the conventions and illusions and veiling respectabilities that would snatch from human nature its proper food. The continental nations may hate human nature and produce their goyas, but such art among Englishmen excites only a lazy contempt. Notwithstanding their passion for law and rule, a necessary thing among people so selfishly bent on their own gains, the Englishman does not actually hate his neighbor, even though he keeps aloof from him. He has indeed a genial relish for the selfishness in his neighbor, which is so strong in himself. Edmund Burke has some such sentence as, quote, the good nature and integrity of this ancient people, unquote. The Dutch, being a freedom-loving people, have a similar good nature. Rembrandt and Shakespeare get artistic pleasure out of the ugly, but with laughter, not as in Goya with a grin of hatred. Indeed, looking at some of Goya's work, one is forced to believe that he hated even the people who looked at his pictures, and wished through them to insult and offend all his friends, a kind of disorderly impulse which in him and others prompts to the disgusting and obscene in art. Butler's emancipated intellect had won for his soul and senses a freedom which he wished to share with others. He had, as it were, acquired a freedom to be on good terms with himself. To be sure, a Scotchman is on good terms with himself when he is conceited, Butler wanted people to be on good terms with their senses and appetites and everything else that goes into our makeup as men, to all of which Scotch conceit is the enemy. For this he was always fighting, and he began to fight at Heatherley's art school. He found us, as he thought, enslaved by this or that convention or illusion, and by his mockeries and his wit worked for our liberation. He always occupied one place in the school chosen so that he could be as close as possible to the model and might paint with small brushes his kind of John Bellini art. There he would stand, very intent and mostly quite silent, intent also on our casual conversation, watchful for the moment when he could make some sally of wit that would crush his victim. He had thick eyebrows and gray eyes. Or were they light hazel? These eyes would sometimes look tired as he plied his hopeless task of learning how to paint. But the discovery of any mental slavery or insincerity among our band of students would bring a dangerous light into them, and he would say things that perhaps hurt very much men who were absolutely sincere, however mistaken. Then Butler, who respected, as he often told me, every kind of sincerity, would humble himself and make apologies that were not always accepted, and in the gray eyes, 
like a little fire on a cold hearth, I would see a melting kindness that it must have been hard to resist. The virtuous are not always the generous, neither are they always as wise as Solomon. At that time, I was a very busy student working from morning to night, otherwise I should have tried to see more of Butler. There is nothing so winning as a look of helpful kindness in a mocking face. Besides, he was a good deal my senior, and seniority is attractive to ingenious youth, and I was then ingenious. I sometimes think that I have lost all my opportunities. The chance of knowing Butler well was one of these. Slowly I have come to feel that affection for human nature which is at the root of all poetry and art, whether the poet be pessimist or optimist. Had I stayed much with Butler, I should have learned my lesson almost at once. Matthew Arnold's sweetness and light was not much to his taste, and he cared nothing for the high ethics of Wordsworth. An affectionate mother, such as we have among the peasants of Ireland, where mother love is a passion, does not want her children to be good half as much as she wants them to be happy. It was so Butler regarded poor, struggling, and deceived human nature. There was the source of his good nature and of his influence. In this, he was preeminently English of the English, and in this there was nothing of the system-maker or the philanthropist. Nor was he a philosopher or anything else except a mere man touching and handling the concrete matters of everyday life. With tenderness of humor and a most real poetry, he touched healingly all the sores of ailing humanity. Butler liked women, but disapproved of marriage. He liked women because, as I heard him say, they are so good-natured. They would laugh with him, but never at him. Then they are obedient and teachable, and the dominee within him liked pupils. His attitude towards them was a smiling indulgence. The charming women of those backward days were still in the Middle Ages, apologetic, almost penitential, as if they asked pardon for being so beautiful or so merry and engaging, and did not a bit mind if Butler regarded them as inferior, especially as towards them he was always kindly and fatherly and innocent. It is quite easy to see why Butler disliked marriage. It would have curtailed his freedom to follow out all his queer vagaries of Butlerian thought and inclination. This consideration does not affect the ordinary Englishman of coarser grain, tenacious of his ancient right to do what he likes with his own, his own being his wife and children and servants and all that he possesses. The ordinary Englishman lives alone in his English home, lord and master of it, with his wife second in command. Butler, of course, could not so live. Therefore, to keep his liberty, he dismissed forever the thought of a married home. Had he married, I have no doubt he would have chosen a helpmate, not likely to dispute his supremacy. I knew Miss Savage, the model for his good woman in The Way of All Flesh. She was a student at the art school, and not very young, and she was lame. Life had disciplined her. She was fair, with a roundish face and light blue eyes that were very sensitive and full of light. A small head, her features charmingly mobile and harmonious. She radiated goodness and sense. She kept herself very much to herself, yet all liked her, even though we never spoke to her. 
Butler soon discovered that she laughed easily, but as usual, he was cautious. One day he consulted me as to whether he could, with safety, ask her a schoolboy riddle he had picked up somewhere. A schoolboy riddle in that, though quite innocent, it was not altogether nice. I don't remember how I advised, only that they became fast friends. Though he avoided marriage, his flesh was weak. Quote, I have a little needlewoman, a good little thing. I have given her a sewing machine. I go to see her. Unquote. As he made his confession, he retired backwards, bowing his head several times as in mockery of himself, an acknowledgment of a sad necessity from which even he was not exempt. For it was given to him also to tread the way of all flesh. It was always part of his philosophy that he should confess his sins, besides being a necessity to his social nature and one of his most engaging qualities. Though he professed to despise Greek plays, he was a good classical scholar. Outside the classics, he had read nothing except Shakespeare and the origin of the species in the Bible. For him, the origin of species was the book of books. If he took a fancy to a student, he would watch him for a few days and then approach him with cautious ceremony. He was always ceremonious. And ask him if he had read the book and perhaps offer to lend it to him. I am proud to remember that he lent it to me. The origin of species had, as he told me, completely destroyed his belief in a personal god. So occasionally, instead of the usual question, he would ask the student if he believed in God. In this, he did not confine himself to students. There was a nude model named Mosley who often sat to us at Heatherley's. He liked this model, in whom he found a whimsical uprightness that appealed to his sense of things. Once, in the deep silence of the class, I heard him asking, Mosley, do you believe in God? Without altering a muscle or a change of expression, Mosley replied, No, sir, I don't believe in old bogey. The form of the answer was unexpected. Its cheerful cockney impudence was beyond even Butler's reach of courage. He retired in confusion, and we laughed. We liked to laugh at Butler's expense. Besides, in those days most of us were orthodox, in fact had never given a thought to the question of deity. But that fear kept them quiet. There were some valiant spirits who would have cried out against him. Since then, as well as now, in America as well as in England, an orthodox inertia was characteristic of artists. They do not go to church. They never give a thought to religion. But they are profoundly orthodox in a deep, untroubled somnolency. I remember that one man, a very successful student, did engage in controversy and was highly sentimental in a dandified, affected way. Butler's reply was one word repeated several times. Pooh. That ended it. I have no doubt that that gentleman still retains his orthodoxy. When a belief rests on nothing, you cannot knock away its foundations. Butler's father was a wealthy dean of the Church of England, and, I fancy, pompous and authoritative. He told me that his father never became excited unless the dinner was late. When he broke away from orthodoxy and announced his intention of becoming an artist instead of a clergyman, his family refused him all assistance. Nor is it true that his father helped him in his New Zealand venture. 
He himself told me that he managed to borrow from friends ten thousand pounds, and that he was more proud of that than of anything else in his life. He stayed in New Zealand four years, after which a lucky turn on the market enabled him to return to England and repay the money, while keeping enough to support himself in his pursuit of art. He liked to tell of his New Zealand life and of his hatred of sheep. They were always getting lost, so that he said the word sheep would be found engraved on his heart. He did not know one of his horses from another or from anybody else's horse, and said he was like the Lord, whose delight is not in the strengths of a horse. Sam Butler's desire for truth and his stripping away from life and belief all the veils of illusion was the characteristic of a man truly poetic. He and his pupil, G.B. Shaw, by their passion for sincerity, helped the imaginative life. When Michelangelo maintained that only the Italians understood art, Vittoria Colonna pointed out that the German pictures touched the feelings. Yes, he replied, because of the weakness of our sensibilities. Poetry and the imaginative life can only flourish where truth is of supreme moment. An education which contents itself with half-knowledge and half-thought will inevitably produce a crowd of sentimentalists and false poets and rhetoricians. The great artist and the great poet have rigorous minds. Michelangelo said of those German pictures that they were only fit for women, ecclesiastics, and people of quality. After all, a poet must believe, and without rigorous thinking, there is no sense of belief. To know things thoroughly, or not at all, this was the habit of Butler's mind, derived from his classical education, in which the whole stress is on the minutiae of scholarship. For instance, he told me that he never studied music till he was twenty-one years of age, after which he gave to it every moment he could spare. Yet he cared only for Handel, content that all the rest should be to him an unknown world. What he could not study thoroughly, he would not study at all. In his eyes, superficial knowledge was superficial ignorance, and the mental habits engendered by it disastrous. Among painters, he valued chiefly those who, like John Bellini, are thorough to minuteness. Though he professed to despise style, he was a precision in words. At a restaurant, which he and I frequented for our midday meal, he met a man who said he never, quote, used, unquote, hasty pudding. This application of the verb use was to him a source of endless amusement. I have heard him tell the story many times. I think he read Shakespeare continually. I know he read no other poetry, although he did glance once a little wistfully at Whitman, the catalog man, he called him. All the same, he was a genuine Englishman and brooded in the imaginative mood of a self-centered solitude which could not be shared with anyone, as the sympathetic Frenchman lives in the imaginative mood of an expansive existence which he would share with everyone. I remember the last time I saw Butler. I was sitting at breakfast, alone in a lodging in an out-of-the-way part of London, having come from Ireland the night before after an absence of seven or eight years. I saw him passing and in glad surprise at once raised the window, meaning to hail him. But I reflected sadly and changed my mind, closing the window and returning to my breakfast, as I thought, 
God forbid that I should intrude myself uninvited on any Englishman. End of chapter 2